Hey listener, welcome back to Rewildology, where we explore conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and world traveler. I have a question. How did this past year turn out for you? Was it full of struggle? Maybe even heartbreak? What did you do with your circumstances? Did you make lemonade out of lemons? Or are you still trying to find the beauty and opportunity in this global shutdown? No matter how this past year turned out for you, you're going to relate to this week's guest, Sheridan Samano. Sheridan is the co-founder and owner of Reefs to Rockies, a boutique travel company that specializes in creating the best nature and wildlife itineraries. Her goal is to give her clients the greatest nature experiences of their life while having as little impact on the environment as possible. I know that you all are well aware that COVID completely crashed the tourism industry and we explore what it was like for her to almost lose her business. Sheridan is the perfect example of embracing the suck, as Brene Brown would say, and creating something beautiful out of her new situation. Sheridan is an avid birder, and in her newfound downtime, she wrote a book called Best Birding Hikes, Colorado Front Range, and continued to grow her popular meetup group, Birding and Beers. Sheridan drops life bombs throughout the whole conversation, and I'm sure she'll impact you just as much as she impacted me. We met at her favorite birding spot outside of Boulder, Colorado to record this episode. So you'll hear some lively birds chirping in the background, even a few airplanes flying overhead. If you're liking the show, please be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified when a new episode drops. I'd really love to hear what you think by leaving a review on wherever you're listening or commenting on Rewildology's YouTube channel. I'm also very active on the socials and you can DM me on Instagram or LinkedIn at Rewildology or email at hello at Rewildology.com. And now onto my conversation with Sheridan. Sweet God, this is such a great place. Yeah, it's a nice spot, isn't it? <laughs> I'm so glad Minus you the, brought the train. <laughs> Gets me out of the office. Yeah, it's like, I gotta do a podcast interview. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I think a great place to start would just be who, who are you and what do you do? And then we'll dive deep into everything else. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to start back at the very beginning? Let's or? start. Let's go all the <laughs> way back. back let's go all go. the way back. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Who yeah. shared it? <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a complex topic. And I think it, yeah, it, yeah, it, it changes daily, right? <laughs> so actually, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and um, not... It's interesting now where like, just even driving up today, getting into this spot, I feel most at peace when I'm outdoors and in kind of wild spaces. And, and we just said wild spaces can be very close to neighborhoods or urbanization. But I didn't really have too much of that as a, as a kid. I remember I've always had just an absolute fascination with wildlife and mm -hmm. nature. I think back to, you know, I, I can remember the first time I thought about what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, as a little kid. And the first thing I wrote a book about it in fourth, we had to write a book. And it was in fourth grade, I wrote a book about this. It was, a, it was set in a zoo. And the, the, the hero of the story was a zookeeper. And I remember that, you know, that was, I really wanted to be a zookeeper. It was like the first job I remember really wanting. And mainly because I thought that was going to get me close to animals, you know, and I, you know, I remember flipping through National Geographic, my grandfather on my mom's side, my mom's dad, 
he lived a couple of hours uh, away in East Texas and he had a house on seven acres, which isn't huge, but as a kid seems huge. You know, so he had the house and then a couple of stock ponds behind it that, you know, you had to walk a ways when go fishing out there. And and he was a nature lover. He was, an, he was a big fly fisherman. He always had National Geographic. So I think a lot of us that are drawn to wildlife, you know, whether it's wildlife tourism or, or just wildlife in general, you remember National Geographic was the iconic yes. magazine. And so, you know, thinking, well, if I become a zookeeper, I can, I can work with these animals. And then, and I don't, you know, as a kid, you don't really quite remember, but he got remarried. And I remember being at lunch with, with his wife and saying something about wanting to work with animals. She's like, well, you know, you could be a veterinarian. Mm. And at that time, and so this was, a, you know, maybe fifth, sixth grade, I think it was probably sixth grade. You know, the conversation came up, it was like Texas A&M University was the only vet school in Texas at the time. Now Texas Tech has a, a vet school as well. But from that point on, sixth grade, I was going to go to Texas A&M and I was going to be a veterinarian because that was going to get me into not wild animal vet. I didn't I didn't foresee, you know, foresee being, a, you know, working at a, a zoo and being a vet, but being a small animal vet. And, and so that was a track like I was that was what I was going to do. And so I go to A&M. And I did a little like internship thing or whatever where you can go and visit, you know, things. And we went to a vet. And I saw blood for the first time and almost passed out. <laughs> oh, no. And and I saw a, a, another thing that happened was there was this cat that had, you know, they you're young kids, you're like high school age. You know, this I, the, it's a little blurry. I think it may have been, it had to have been my senior year in high school before, but I had already been accepted to A&M. So that's where I was planning to go. And there was a cat and it, it's not a great story, but it, it really, I think, kind of invoked this this from then on this like real passion for being an advocate for animals in whatever way that that came about because it was a cat that you know they brought us in you know these young kids and there's a cat laying on this table that's paralyzed and the cat they're they're trying to kind of assess what do you think happened you know and and what the long story short a neighbor kid it was an older an elderly woman's cat she came home it was in her front yard not moving and paralyzed because a neighbor kid shot it with a BB gun. Yeah. And they had to euthanize it. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I can do that. I, you know, I, I, you see it, right? Like, you know, I've seen now I've been on safari and seen, you know, a cheetah take out, you know, a gazelle and, and understand that that's a very different thing, but those sorts of things, the blood that all these things come together. And so, yeah, I still want to work with animals, but I'm not quite sure that it's going to be vet school. So luckily, Texas A&M had a wildlife and fisheries program. So if you fast forward a little bit, I changed majors after my freshman year. I changed into from the pre-vet track my sophomore year to, to wildlife and fisheries because I figured I can still work with animals, but I'll do it from behind binoculars or, you know, from that kind of a different standpoint where I'm not, you know, in, in the, the veterinary aspect. And from then I was hooked. My first majors class was ornithology. So, you know, the study of birds. And, you know, we had to do, and it was just by chance, like it, it could have been mammalogy, it could have been, you know, whatever, I, I, herpetology, you know. So here it's ornithology, we're, we're having to take these field trips with a TA who's teaching the lab. And it was a Saturday field trip to a reservoir outside of College Station. And we pull up on this bridge and there's a bald, it was in, it was in the winter, so all the trees had, had lost their leaves and there was a bald eagle sitting up in a tree. 
And I don't know, I probably had seen a bald eagle prior to that, but I certainly never really registered it. And it was sitting up in this tree and it, it flew out of the tree. And when it opened its wingspan, my mouth just dropped. I was like, I couldn't believe it was that big. And it, it was really the spark, you know, and then, you know, in that same class, we were walking one day, it was another, another field day, we're walking along these, this, this kind of rural road, and it's a barbed wire fence, and, you know, the, the TA's like, you guys know any, notice anything on, on this fence? And you start looking closely, and you're seeing things like grasshoppers mm. on the barbed wire. Mm. Did you want to have noticed before? Would have never noticed before. She's and and so the story goes in. You know, there's this bird called the loggerhead shrike that impales its prey. Oh, it's called so... the butcher bird. You know, <laughs> it's this little masked bandit <laughs> that takes its prey and sticks it on a thorn or on a barbed wire fence and comes back and gets it later. And I was just like, Are you kidding me? A bird? Does a bird? Does, I mean, how badass is that? Yeah. Like. And so, you know, it was like a couple of more things and I was done. I was like, uh, you know, birds, uh, are it. birds are it. I took a field studies course soon thereafter in, in Mexico and a good friend of mine who was also in, in the, the, the program with me. We came back from that. I ended up having to lead bird walks because I was the only student who had taken ornithology and we were doing mist netting for bats. And we both came back from that trip and I said, I'm going to study birds. And she came back. She's like, I'm going to study bats. And that's ultimately kind of set the, the path. And so, you know, I, I, it took a few years. I graduated. I did field work with an emphasis on birds, worked in a variety of places. And then I, I came out my senior year of college in spring breaks. So it was in 95, March of 95. Uh, a friend of mine and I came to visit another friend who had just moved out to Boulder. And we drove out and it took two days. We finally, we, coming up 36, I remember pulling on the, you know, at the overlook there, right as you're coming into Boulder. And seeing the flat irons for the first time and like love at first sight, like wholeheartedly. And I remember I, saying, I'm going to live here someday. Mm. And especially after that, the, that week of being here. And a year and a half later, I was here. <sighs> and I didn't quite know what it was going to do, but I was lucky to be able, I was looking at grad schools. You know, I thought for sure I was going to PhD track and, and teach at a university. And I ended up finding, I wanted to, to have a female graduate advisor. It was a big deal. It was in Texas. It was, it was a fantastic program, but it was very male dominated. It was very much the track was feeding into fish and game management, which I had no desire to do. And so I was lucky enough to, to find out about a professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, Diana Tomback. I don't even remember how, you know, this is kind of like right at the internet sort of stuff. I don't remember how I found out about her, but I reached out to her and, and eventually got into grad school and I was able to stay. You know, I did field work. I did a, did studied uh, Clark's Nutcrackers, which is a super cool high altitude bird here. It, it's, it exhibits this really interesting obligate mutualism with the pine trees it lives in. So it, it literally replants the forest for these trees. And, and so, you know, I graduated, was like most grad students, decided I need to take a break between field work and maybe I'll go back for my PhD. But I got a job at the Community College of Aurora teaching. I had a mammalogy professor later at A&M. This guy, he studied bats. And, you know, you've told, you tell stories a lot, right? You know, certain stories, you know, every time you meet somebody, that story comes up or if you're a teacher, you know, you're telling these same kind of tidbits each time you teach a class when you get to a certain point. 
And this, this professor, when he would talk about bats, you knew he had told these stories a hundred times. And it was this childlike enthusiasm. Like every time he told, you could just see it in him. And I remember thinking, if you can do, if, if you can find something as a teacher, if you can invoke that enthusiasm and kind of, you know, t get just even one student every year really captivated by it, you're golden, you know? And so I knew I, I wanted to teach. And so I, I was able to get a, a, a teaching job. I started teaching part-time at the Community College of Denver and Community College of Aurora because you're able to teach with a master's degree in the major. You don't have to have a PhD. And I never thought, I thought it'd be a year or two. I'll go teach and, you know, come back and, and get, finish my PhD and then, you know, track into teaching at a, a four-year university. But I got in the classroom and it was, I loved it. I mean, I just loved the student body, really diverse, very diverse student population at both community college versus where I had gone to school, mm -hmm. which I loved. I loved the dynamic, the conversations. And I don't remember if it was a year or two after doing part-time teaching at both, a full-time position at the community college of Aurora came up. And so I, I was able to, to get hired there. So I taught for, I actually taught there for 11 years. But in the midst of that, I, because I had done a field studies course as an undergrad and I had done a field studies course as a grad student, and I'm kind of, I always say I'm a, a somewhat high-functioning introvert. I wasn't a student that went and knew to go meet professors. Neither of my parents had gone to college, so I was mm -hmm. first generation. I didn't have that kind of networking skills that I think if you kind of come up through that, you know. And so really felt like I had missed out on being able to just kind of develop a relationship with a professor for letters of recommendation, all these things that become a big deal you know, later on. And I felt that the community college students were going to miss that too, because if they spend two years, their first two years at a community college, they go to a four-year school, well, they've lost the two years already, right? So it takes a little while. So I wanted to develop a field studies program that we didn't have, most of our, our students were tracking uh, pre-health, so a lot of pre-nursing, mm -hmm. a lot of pre-pharmacy students. So they were going to go into the health stuff, but we had a handful that were thinking wildlife. They were thinking, see, it, you know, Colorado State University or something like that. So to get tenure, you had to come up with a, a project. And so I approached my, my department chair and said, you know, I had gone to Costa Rica for the first time and came back from that and said, I want this. I want to do a study abroad program here. So I came back and talked to the, my, my department chair and said, you know, what do you think about me developing a study abroad program for students here? And, she, and I said, and in Costa Rica, you know, where it's somewhat... It's not, it's not as tough a sell as some places. It's a little more accessible. The, a lot of these students had very you know, low you know, financial means, et cetera. But that's, we, that's, that's what happened is I, I started a study abroad program wow. that focused on sea turtle conservation there. I was lucky enough to, to meet some really fantastic partners there. And eventually that became Reefs to Rockies. I uh, started traveling with the students and very quickly when you're taking 20 undergrad students, you learn very quickly <laughs> what works well, what does, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, very, very quickly you figure things out. And so, you know, I, a few years later, I started, I, you know, I had four months off. It was a great job, loved it. Four months off a year had, you know, was it able to kind of be in the classroom as much as I possibly could. The department really, you know, facilitated that. I wasn't having to do research because it wasn't a research institution. 
And, uh, but the travel bug just became too much, you know, it's like, I don't want to only have to be able to, why do I only get to travel during spring break or over the, you know, the holiday, winter break. And, and then summer, I want to go when it's like a really sweet spot for wildlife, you know, and I really, I don't like sharing it with, I don't like sharing those experiences with people. So I want to go when it's low season, you know? And so it didn't take very long to where I kind of started, you know, building this business on the side that was never really intended on it being anywhere. You know, I didn't expect it to go anywhere, but it was about the time of, you know, 20, was it 2000? I always forget when the economic would have been like 2008. Yeah. The economy crashed. We started, started really hearing in the travel industry terms like ecotourism had been there. But you're, you know, every year I feel like in the travel industry, you get a new buzzword. So sustainable tourism <laughs> was true. starting to come on and, and all of these different things. And, and because of my background in wildlife and, and doing field work and stuff, I had, and had the terminology and I had the baseline knowledge. And so I'd be in conversations with other organizations, you know, especially thinking about conservation partners. And there are other companies out there that were already doing this, but we got, we started getting traction really quickly because a lot of companies were retrofitting it. Mm. You know, they were mm. kind of coming back and saying, oh, now we need to think about sustainability or now we need to start thinking about conservation if they were focusing on wildlife. And, and we were already doing it. It was already in our DNA. And so we just got really good traction pretty quickly. And so it took a couple of years of me working nights after, you know, grading and getting up early and doing it before I went into the college but I decided I'm not a great employee in the sense that I I'm a, I really like to manage my own time. I like to be in, I'm a control freak. And so I wasn't able to do that as much as I could as, you know, after being at the college for a decade, they, they wanted you, you know, they kind of, you started needing to get a pool. Oh, you need to be on more committees and stuff. I just wanted to be in the classroom and that was it for me. And so it was just a good time for me to leave. And so I left and friends thought I was crazy. I mean, I was tenured, you know, I had a great job. I had four months off a year, but I, I took a leap and luckily I had a super supportive partner that said, do it. And so in 2011, I didn't renew my contract and started running Reefs to Rockies full time. So, yeah. And so, you know, you build it slowly and I've, I've never been money driven. I've been experience driven for me. It's about, you know, I, I gave a speech at graduation one year at the college. I was faculty of the year one year and, and, and I, you know, talked about that mammalogy professor and, and his enthusiasm and, and really the, the kind of the end of the talk was, you know, find a, it, it's a, it's a cliche, but it really is true. Find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And that really, it, it's, it's, it's very true. You know, I mean, it's, it, you're lucky if you can find something that you can make money at and enjoy it. And that's not to say, some of it doesn't suck, right? I don't like checking email. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, nobody likes checking. Send you know, me your passport. You know, I don't, <laughs> it, there are all sorts of things about it that don't, but you're still, you still, the underlying premise of it is your passion and, and it's fantastic. You know, I mean, it's been this last year, had we been having this conversation a year ago today, it would have been a very different conversation. But now that we're a year past COVID or a year into it, not past it yet, but into it, it, it really allowed me as a, as an entrepreneur and as a business owner to reset and, and, and kind of refigure out, okay, what, what is it really that you're most passionate about? And so it's, it is the travel part and it's very specific niche market travel with a heavy emphasis on, on wildlife viewing and really the spectacles, not, you know, there are companies and, and, and not to, this is not, I hope it doesn't sound like a negative at all, but there are companies that run 
let's say it's a whale shark tour in Mexico, that the whale shark season's June, early June, kind of mid, late May, early June through August, there are companies that will run whale shark trips that whole season. Well, that's not the sweet spot. The sweet spot's about a 10-day period. Mm. We're gonna book only that 10-day sweet spot because we want it to be at a different level. And having that wildlife background and being kind of a nature nerd, wildlife junkie, I would rather do fewer trips, but make sure that when we get our clients into those spectacles, they are just at peak, you know? I mean, it really is not this two month, three month window, it's very compressed. Uh, and so that's been, you know, that's that's kind of where where the company has been. And There's that so question. That, that's kind of like a, a, a big a big dump, a, a word dump in terms of getting from a kid in Texas to Colorado and staying here. But yeah, so. Yeah, let's go back a little bit because I think that it's so amazing that you took that big leap in entrepreneurship. And, and I think in this industry in general, there is kind of this narrative that the only way you can do it is if you have a job. So could you tell me more about like your mindset? Was it scary? What was the final decision making factor that was like, okay, I'm going to leave my stable career that's in doing what I love to go on this path that isn't guaranteed in any way, shape or form? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I can, I can, I can be a storyteller and, and make it you know, part of me is it was scary. I mean, I remember, I, I vividly remember when I made the decision, there were a couple of things that came to be. One, I remember being at, there, there were a couple of factors. I had, I really wanted to travel more. I mean, that was the big thing. I was, I was into the study abroad program and I wanted to do more of, of the travel part of it. And I was already kind of trying to figure out how can I maybe get out of the semester for a week. Well, we all, as teachers, you don't, it's not like you can, it doesn't doesn't (laughs) exist, you know? And I'd be like, what if I leave finals a little bit early? You know, that sort of a thing, which isn't, which isn't great to be asking for those things. But a couple of things that happened is the last two years I was at the college, a dear friend of mine who was a colleague, he's the other biologist that, that he was the only biologist on staff when I got hired. He was, he got pancreatic cancer Mm. in his mid forties. That's so young. Yeah. And he died a couple of years later and seeing that and having worked with him at that point for seven, eight years and sitting in the office on our breaks and and hearing him tell stories about what he was going to do when he retired with his wife. And, you know, his kids were young and, and, and watching it, I mean, watching, he, you know, watching him die and kind of coming through remission and stuff. And that all, it changed me. It was like, I, there, you don't have that guarantee. So I think that that becomes, you know, if it's something in you, again, not everybody, I have kids. I, I tell them, you know, all the time we talk about the future, they're, you know, eight and almost 10, they're young, but it's like, if you can just figure out something that really engages you for an extended period of time, that's what I hope. And I hope that you can make money at it. That doesn't mean to me, a measure of success is not the big house and the car and stuff. It's if you can pay your bills and and be okay, not living with me, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know at 18, on your own, you're on your own. <laughs> but if you can find something that really fulfills you, that's great. And I think that's where that, so that I'm not really answering your question in the sense of you have to, if it's really something you believe in, not to say that it's going to happen, because I have a hard time too. I tend to be a little bit more of a realist. If you just work your ass off, it's going to happen. I call 
BS on that somewhat too, sometimes because it just, it just sometimes it just doesn't happen. But if if you if you kind of follow that path, it it works out. It's you know I was willing to you know I didn't I didn't get hired as a biologist. You know I, I'm friends with Bill Given, who you had on a recent episode. You know he he was able to take a business background and then you know move it into doing you know as a consultant and work in the field i did field work but more as a mechanism to get me into grad school and then the research that i did in grad school but i was willing to work for free you know i worked for free for 2 years and i lived very you know on with without very much money and and i grew, i didn't grow up with money so i paid for my college you know i had scholarships but i paid for what was left over and so if you're if you're willing to do it you have to be willing to do it, mm-hmm. which means you have to be able to sacrifice a little bit. Go sometimes. through the suck. Yeah, go through the suck. Exactly. Embrace the suck, right, as Brene Brown would say. Yeah, and, exactly. but, but, you know, I mean, it's it's true. And so if you're not willing to do that, then you're probably not really willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to sound old, right? I'm in my late 40s now. But, I, I you know, it's this idea of even when, when we used to think about getting interns at, at for Reefs to Rockies, was it paid? Well, I didn't make money when I first, the first job I had was working as a naturalist intern at a nature, an urban wildlife nature center in Fort Worth. I drove 45 miles, 45 minutes a day. I got paid $20 a week. Now, granted, gas was less expensive then, but I think maybe I was taking home $10 a week. I mean, I was living with, you know, my mom, she let me live there so I could, you know, live for, but, you know, that's a lot of work and commitment to do. And so I think you have to be willing to kind of go through it. And it is tough because once you're in the system, especially with government jobs, it's people will, st- you know, they, they're gonna, it's hard to navigate that. I mean, I remember when we were hiring it, when we would go through hiring processes at the college, if you were already there and we wanted you on the team, there was going to be a way to get you on the team sort of a thing. Mm. You know, I mean, we may hire other faculty and we did. I mean, it wasn't always, but, you know, if you're already kind of have your foot in the door, you were willing to work part-time as an adjunct professor and then go into that. But I think a lot of it is just being willing. I have a good friend who was, who she looked for jobs in the in kind of, you know, in a superfluous way for two and a half years and was told no a lot, but she really, I mean, I'd meet with her and she's like, I, this is what I want to do. And she made it work. She waited tables. She did whatever she had to do. And now she's got this great job and, you know, she's living the dream in the sense that she, she's doing what she really felt like was, was her calling. So, so let's go back then to Reefs to Rockies, like what it stands for. Cause obviously me and Bill are very close and how I immediately knew I was going to completely love you is that you have a different level at which you travel and see nature. Like it's going to be very conservation focused, environmental stewardship, all those things. So let's chat more about that. How do you tie that all together to ensure that your trips are making the least amount of impact and also just more about reefs to Rockies in general. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think the big thing is, you know, there, there's certainly impact, <clears throat> but let's talk about Costa Rica, probably the most Costa Rica up until a year ago was by far our number one selling destination for new clients. Now it, I knew it. I know Costa Rica in a way that there aren't a lot of travel consultants know Costa Rica because I worked, I started a study abroad program there. So I traveled with students. I still take one, I work with one school, but I still travel with them every year. I love that school. And so actually registration for the fall trip just opened today. And I'm already, it looks like we're going to have enough interest for two back to, you know, back to back trips, but it's, (laughs) 
you know, it's kind of when we when we first started really kind of plugging Costa Rica, we had Amy who was working with us at the time. We we really, you know, you have I don't know how familiar you are with Costa Rica and with many destinations, Costa Rica has a certificate for sustainable tourism. But by traveling on kind of a initially with the students on kind of a lower budget scale, a lot of those companies have such small margins that what people don't tell you is it costs a lot of money, not only in time, but also money to get certified. It's not free. You can't just say, I want to be, I'm doing these things. And so I'm give me a certification based upon these green measures I'm doing, these sustainability measures I'm doing. You know, I'm using non-toxic cleaning. You know, I'm not spraying pesticides. That's not a free thing. But I was seeing, <clears throat> staying at properties and working with people that, they were as green as it as it came. One of my favorite lodges in Costa Rica is a property called El Romanso down in the Osa Peninsula. We first started working with them. They they weren't certified because they didn't have they ended up having to hire two interns to do it, to go through the certification process. <laughs> two interns. When they got their certification, they got the highest level of certification they could get. Well, that wasn't by accident. They had been doing it, they've been walking the walk for years. And so we really preferentially try to, you're not going to see accommodations highlighted in our itineraries because that it's not about what it is to me. Yes, I, as I've gotten older, I love staying at luxury accommodations. You know, I'm not a super big fan of where I'm gonna stay in September for these two weeks with students, especially at one property that's completely off the grid. There's no electricity, you know, I hope my little, a rechargeable battery fan works a little bit to get some air. You know, it's not comfortable. But making sure that if, if a client comes to us and says, all I care about are the accommodations, and I just had a client recently that that said that, that, that that's what the thing they keep hitting, they're probably not a good fit for us. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Like there are other travel companies out there that that's their specialty. There's no, there's nothing to knock that. But for us, it's about... The underlying focus is the wildlife experience. It's about that portion. And by focusing on that, we tend to get them in in shoulder season or green season. You know, you Google what's oh, the best season. time. Mm -hmm. You Google the, what's the best time to travel to Costa Rica. And if you look at companies that are running a lot of trips, they're running it from mid-December through March. You can't pay me to go to Costa Rica during that time. <laughs> I, I, I mean, honestly, like if... If somebody offered me a trip during that time, I would say, let's do it in May. Let's do it in September because not one, if you're a wildlife enthusiast, you want to be there when the animals are active and when the rainforest looks like rainforest, when it's all lush and green. Well, that's in the rainy season, the green season. And so we just, we, we kind of focus on all parts of it, making sure that we're working with as many in-country operators. When we first started, we booked everything direct. I booked before I even had staff where... Every transfer was booked directly. Every hotel was booked directly. It was very That's time. A it's a lot. <laughs> now a we lot. don't. Now we have a, a you know a, a partner there that we trust implicitly. But even them, going back to that level of knowledge, I've had to train them sometimes. So they'll try. Like I'll tell them the profile of what the clients are looking for, especially from a wildlife perspective. So I you know I kind of tell them, okay, I think they need to be here for this particular if it's their birders or you know whatever it is. And for a long time, like well, we don't really. I'm like, you need to develop. A relationship here because these properties we've used in the past, they're great, 
it doesn't make sense to go to Monteverde for cloud forest when they could go to this other cloud forest environment where there's far less infrastructure and the wildlife viewing's better. So yeah, so it's that. It's just that that whole approach of not needing to be big, not needing to be mass market, understanding that it's about the experience aspect of it. It's about supporting those local communities. I mean, even like we were just talking, I leave for back-to-back trips to California on Wednesday. I've already started looking at some of these clients have tried, one particular client has done this trip before. So I want to make sure she gets as many new experiences in it as she can. So I'm finding different restaurants. We always embed craft beer. You know, we'll probably at some point talk about. Oh, we're going to talk about Uh, that. You know, and, and those sorts of things. But, you know, how can I really get them into the sense of place too? I mean, you know, Costa Rica, you can stay, you can stay at some incredible high-end luxury lodges that feel like Costa Rica. You can also stay at really high-end properties that just feel like any other five-star resort. And you're, you know, that- that In Mexico or something. Yeah, and it it doesn't, that doesn't resonate. I want to know that I'm where I'm, I'm, that I'm in a sense of place. That's not just the comfort aspect, but all of it, you know, that I'm engaging with the employees and there isn't this standoff portion and- Yes. Yeah. So that's wow. I kind of wish I worked for your company. (laughs) Sounds incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's like I said, it's, it's, we're not, we're not trying to be something for everybody, but when we, when we do it, when we, when we get that client, you know, when I interview the client, I'm just like, let me, please let me do this trip for you. You have (laughs) no idea how we, we can just knock this out of the park. Oh, your granddaughter's interested in the sea turtles? How about this? How about we send you to this sea turtle conservation project where for two days, she's gonna get to work with sea turtles during the day. There's only a handful of these projects in the world. It's daytime sea turtle stuff. She's gonna have her hands on these critically endangered species. And then for the rest of the trip, you can stay at these really cool eco lodges where monkeys are going to be outside. But you talk about blowing the socks off your kid's experience. And that's possible. You know, I mean, that and and it's and the fact that we customize everything Mm. is, I think, also a little bit different. We don't run set departures, which in hindsight, sure, that would have been a lot a, a way to scale up. But then you can't tell me that you really customize trips. If your whole portfolio is scheduled group departures, how, yeah. how custom are you? Because you that's what you know. That's what you've been selling. And that's great. There's, like I said, any of these comments aren't meant to be knocking anything other than the fact that for us, it's really small scale, mm. you know, very heavy on that wildlife experience and making sure because we don't, we're not big. It's not like Bill where he's now, you know, got camps and and all these other things that are great where he, you know, he can really put you in that space, but making sure that we, we get you in the sweet spot, but also using these really fantastic local properties and get you into the local restaurant so that you're out in the community eating and you get as much trickle down effect as you can with respect to how yes. that money is staying in the community. Mm. So, wow. Yeah. I value that so much. Like just, just coming back from Nepal a couple of days ago, still fighting jet lag. I mean, that's the way I traveled the entire time. Yeah. You know, like my tour guide, I guess you can call him Raj. He was with us. Like he lives in Kathmandu and he took us around and all of Dave Johnson's partners that we met with, like they're the conservationists on the ground. The, the owner of the lodges were with us when we were out on safari. It was, we, we felt like family. Yeah. And because of that, 
I'm completely in love with Nepal. Yep. Like if I would have done a different style trip, I don't know if I would have had that type of connection. Yeah. Cause it's also the people like, you know, we, we go to these places for the wildlife experiences, but it's always the people that we remember. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I want to go back and feel like family with them again. And then you add each other on Facebook because everybody around the world sees that Facebook. And yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. And you do, you develop these relationships. There was a, there's another sea turtle project in Costa Rica that we, we worked with for years and, and we haven't been sending travelers there, not because it's not a fantastic project, but because of some of the, there's a point at which the accommodations, if there can be some small tweaks that really accelerate comfort. And when, when you're not getting that, but that project's getting hammered right now because of COVID, all of them are. Yes. And to see, you know, and, and so seeing those requests through Facebook and stuff, it really, it's like, uh, you know, it just, it hurts to see that. It's one of the things in, in the news and, you know, we're hearing about, you know, positivity rates and how many people are in the hospital. What we're not talking about is how many people have lost their jobs and haven't worked for a year. You're talking about, what is it? One in five people, is it 10% or 20% of the workforce in the world in depends the world. on tourism? In the world. And nobody's talking about that. No. And yeah, here we have PPP loans and we have unemployment and extended benefits through that. Well, what if you live in Tanzania? Nepal. What if you live in Costa Rica? When I went to Costa Rica in November, which was still major during the shutdown, the driver that picked me up, from I took my sister, I had a trip that was postponed, but I decided to go because I had the week blocked. So I took my sister who had never been. When she got arrived before me, the driver picked her up, took her to the airport. We were going to get a rental car, took her to the, this airport hotel to, to wait for me, picked me up. So I was talking to him. I said, how... How busy have you been since March? He said, you're the third person I've driven since March. It was November, you know? I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, and yeah, you know, we can all talk about, but that, you know, you think about, especially when you've, I don't know, it's just, it's amazing. You know, it's, I wish it was something that was getting more, of course I'm invested in it because I'm in the travel industry. And I've had friends say, well, aren't you, you know, isn't that, aren't you kind of, how do you wrap your head around wanting to promote travel when it's a risk? I'm like, there are people starving to death, you know, I mean, in terms of what's going on. And yes, it's a risk. But I think at this point, how many of us know people that have gotten it and been OK? OK. Yeah. The, the, the bad stories are always going to be there. Of course, we want to minimize risk. You know, it's been really tough, especially, as you said, you, you know, these people, they're like family. You see them suffering and, and it's coming back. And I hope in a way it doesn't, I mentioned earlier buzzwords, you know, the, the buzzword before COVID, I gave a talk at Metro State University, their ecotourism class. Every, I gave it that trip, that talk once a year. Every year I would use the buzzword for the year, like what was trending. It was over tourism. Mm. What, th- two months before we first heard what COVID was, three months later, there's a, you know, worldwide shutdown. Well, I'm hoping maybe this does a little bit of a reset, you know, where, okay, I, but I don't know. I talked to somebody today about availability in Alaska. They're sold to some of those lodges are hundred percent capacity already. So I don't know. We'll see. But I hope, I hope maybe we, we look at it a little bit different way with respect to how we approach it and scale and yeah. yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I think in America, we live in this bubble where it's like, we have to mitigate risk. We have to mitigate risk. Well, how many checks, stimulus checks have been sent out? How much unemployment is there? When I was just in Nepal, none of that existed. And since I was with 
partners who are all in the tourism industry, they haven't had work for a year mm -hmm. and there is no government assistance there. Yeah. And when I was in Kathmandu, they were very open about the unstable political situation. And I think a lot of it has to do with this because they're still getting taxed out the wall zoo and they have absolutely no income. So what was even worse, the most real, most real conservation experience I've ever had in my life. Since people have no income, they are more reliant on the natural resources that are around them. And multiple people were killed while I was there because they were going into the forest to get things just to heat their house, just to get firewood, just to do things just to survive. Yeah. And which was putting them in danger with the natural wildlife that was in the area. So there was multiple tiger attacks. One of them, actually, ironically, I had seen two days prior the in the same spot. Yes. Yeah. The same tiger. Someone had gone in the area. Um, he was collecting grass for his elephants. So he was off his elephant in the area collecting grass, happened to be near where the tiger was and the tiger was threatened and he attacked him. And would that, would it have any of these scenarios happened had, you know, tourism been up, had there been a sense of income, how there been something else yeah, no, it's, it's, it's tough. It's hard. To, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. And, and, you know, and that's the thing it's, it, it, you know, we, especially if you have any sort of buy-in on, you know, conservation-based tourism, sustainable tourism, community-based, whatever you want to call it, where you're trying to make sure that as much money is going into the local community, because, you know, the basic needs are the same. You have to eat, you have to eat. And, you know, yes. we you hear this story, you know, you know, in Tanzania, well, who are some of the best guides? Well, the poachers and, and the fact of is if you if they can make more money guiding instead of poaching, they'll take that guide job probably, you know, and, but if there's not that money coming in, they still have to eat. And so they're going to go back to poaching and you can't you can't fault them for it. No, what you know? else do they I mean, have? You know, it's just it's just it's a very different. We have a very different way of of and I'm I'm I'm, you know, glad I live here, but it. It is. It's frustrating when I when I when I hear things about, oh, well, why are we talking about travel? It's like because people depend upon it. You know, I mean, they you think about all of these economies that haven't, you know, it's the only thing their country, their only just quote, unquote, took, took export. It. Yeah. I thought it was a big deal to lose, you know, have a hundred and twenty five percent drop in revenue in, in a three week span last year. But I still had my, I had a savings and I had a PPP loan and these things that can kind of get you through it. You have that rug pulled out from underneath you and you have no backup plan and no forewarning. That's that's the big thing, right, is the fact that it just happened so quickly. But, you know, I mean, I think the thing is, is that at least as we kind of as we're starting to move past it and we're starting to get some travel and, you know, people, a lot of the postponements are now coming up and they're happening because, uh, you know, uh, a core demographic of our cl clients is, are, are fully vaccinated. And so they're ready to at least domestically start getting back out there. So those domestic trips are running. But for me, it's about let's get some money into those local local economies. You know, let's thump that small little hotel owner, that restaurant, that that brewery where, you know, they, they it's their passion project and me bringing, you know, 10 people in and us all sitting there and having a couple of beers is going to help that, you know, daily bottom line. And so, but, you know, the thing is, is that the reality at the end of the day, I have, let's say all of this Reef Starockies ended tomorrow. I have had the most amazing, we just had our 15th anniversary in February. We celebrated our 15th anniversary. 
the most incredible wildlife experiences. You know, I mean, I have been in the right place at the right time on lots of different occasions and that, you know, and, and clients with me, you know, so which is the other great thing about that is, you know, having that have become friends and, and, you know, those takeaways of, wow, you know, and knowing that, that you, not only did you get to experience that, but that local, that local economy also benefited from you being there, you know, eating at the local restaurants, et cetera. So, yeah, you know, yeah. And I, I just think that those of us that are more in touch on a global scale, just sees what this shutdown has done on a stronger, on a stronger level. So yeah, hopefully here soon things yeah. will start to open back up. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I, yeah, I think people are, you know, starting to think about it and then hopefully you get that, that, that ability for the people that depended upon it to, I mean, we're, you know, the guides and stuff, it'll be interesting, you know, to see depending upon, you know, what, how it goes. I mean, if you're a guide, whether or not those guides are passionate enough to maybe have taken another part-time job and then come back to it. Right. We were talking about, you know, how, how driven are you to do that particular thing and whether or not they're going to be able to do that in the future, you know, mm-hmm. or did they go take an office job or, you know, anything, you know, right. working in a, in a computer lab or, or whatever in terms of trying to make those ends meet more stable, boring job. Well, no, I mean, you know, and I, I wish I loved sitting at a computer all day. It would be convenient. I know people that do. So it's not, you know, don't, I mean, that's, I think that's great. (laughs) I mean, because they're needed. Yeah. Yeah, It's just like with our personality types, it's just like, yeah, yeah, not not my jam, but you know, for sure for other people. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was great. Really. So ironically, so Costa Rica keeps getting brought up in my life over and over and over and over and over. And I really want to go this year for my 30th birthday. So yeah, <laughs> well, I have to chat. You know, we can chat. I can, <laughs> I, I can at least point you in the right direction. Great. So let's go back to birding. So why are we sitting where we are right now? Yeah. So this is Walden Ponds Wildlife Habitat. Funnily, is funnily a word? Funny enough. <laughs> I like it. Let's keep it. This is the first place I remember going birding when I moved to Boulder mm-hmm. in 96. So I moved in 96. So it had to be probably late 96. So we're at this little spot that every time I come here and I, I've, I've, I don't know how many times I've come here, you see something new. We're kind of in a transition period right now, but this old property that they took, you know, used to use and quarry out materials for roads and streets has now been filled with water. And it's just, you know, if you, you can, within a two mile loop that, you know, heading towards west, towards the foothills from here, you can see bald eagles and osprey fishing and great horned owls and pretty much every type of waterfowl you can imagine that we get during Colorado throughout the year. American white pelicans have just gotten back. If we walked, so we're sitting, what, not how many yards from the, where we park? 30, 40 yards? Yeah, not that far. In the summer, from the beginning of the boardwalk to the end of this boardwalk, it is not unusual to see 30 species of birds. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, just in that space. I mean, it will be popping. It's a little warm today, too. I think that may be why we're, kind of we're in this lull. But red-winged blackbirds, common yellowthroats, song sparrows, house wrens, American goldfinches, all of this. And so, you know, as... I, as I've kind of moved through 
grad school where I got had to do birding for work. I took several years of not really birding for pleasure. But after that, and I grew up birding in Texas, I started mm. birding in Texas, which is kind of not the best place to start birding because it's <laughs> really, really good. And I remember thinking, Colorado doesn't really have that many great birds. Well, we may only have just over 500 species that have been recorded here, but they are great birds. Mm. And so when I left teaching in 2011, I, I was working from home and I went from this job to where I talked on any given day for about six hours straight, you know, two, the, our lectures were three hour lectures. Wow. So, you took a so, that, so if you had two, two teaching days, you know, two classes in a teaching day, you were talking for six hours and then, you know, so going, and then you had all these colleagues. So the collegiality aspect of it was you, you were talking during your off time as well. So going from that to working alone in my office at home, I really missed people. Mm. And I'm not super extroverted, but I had about, about that time, 2012-ish, 2000, it's kind of a little bit blurry. I was starting to get back into birding and I got this idea, it was at a friend of mine who at the time, she's a writer here in Boulder, Michelle Thiel. She was running these conferences. She used to run uh, Women's Adventure Magazine. She was running these creative conferences. And they would have a writing track and a photography track. And I went to several of them, but you know, it's one of those things, it's kind of like this intense weekend where it just sparks all this creativity. And I had really started getting into birding, bird watching here. And I, but what I was seeing was like the books about birding, et cetera, were really not focused on the, what to me was so beautiful about being in nature, the aesthetics of it. And so at one of these conferences, I kind of came up with the, I came up with an idea of a book that would highlight the aesthetics or the beauty of birding in Colorado. And what really kind of tying in, because I went to grad school and planned to study birds, but I found out really quickly that you can't study birds without learning a lot about the plants because that's, that dictates everything. So I had to learn the, the plants in Colorado and I fell in love with our, our different ecotones or ecosystems, habitats, our life zones, whatever you want to use. And so I pitched a book to, at one of these conferences that I felt like was probably going to have a mostly female target market. That was, I've been out with a lot of birders where it was just like list, list, list. I want to see, if, if I don't see 50 species today, it wasn't a great, it wasn't a great day. For me, it was kind of the slow birding aspect. I want to look, I want to be in a pretty space. And yeah, I, I, if it's a new bird up at a dump in Fort Collins, I may drive up there to see Jeer Falcon. And I did drive up there to see Jeer Falcon, <laughs> but I was still looking at a dump, you know, yeah, it wasn't yeah. the most aesthetically pleasing experience. But so pitch this book, the publisher really liked the idea. But then, you know, as any publisher would say is who, who is going to be your target market? You can't just say it's women, you know, whatever. And so I didn't know how to reach. I, I also felt like it was going to be beginning birders that were really going to be, you know, that would kind of get into this, this particular aspect. So I was on a trip. We actually do trips for Denver. We're one of the travel partners for Denver Audubon. And I, it was the first or second trip we did for them was a trip out to Cape May, New Jersey. And I was sharing a room with a woman on the trip and we flew in and out of Philadelphia. And she had, she was planning on staying a few days later. I said, what are you going to do? It's like, well, I'm just going to go on meetup. 
And I had never heard of Meetup at the time. So I, I, I said, well, what is that? She's like, oh, it's a great thing. It's, you can put in your interests and you'll find Meetup groups that you know, have similar interests. And so I'm just going to do that. I'll find things to do based on that. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And I was at another kind of workshop and, and I'm here, you know, I'm kind of thinking how, you know, what, what can I do to get non-birders? Because I could go lead bird walks for Denver Audubon, but if you're familiar with what the Audubon Society is, you already kind of have a knowledge of birds. You've already kind of sought that out. You've looked for it. How am I going to get non-birders? And Denver Audubon was doing birds and beers trivia. And I was kind of researching stuff, and there was a, a woman up in um, the Minneapolis area that was doing birds and beer, bir birds and beers events. I think she was calling it birds and beers. But it, and you look into it, and it was at a brewery. It was like a talk, you know. Okay, people come in and talk about birds. At that time, I couldn't find anybody that was actually getting people out birding. Mm. They were just having beers. Yeah, they were talking about beer, you know, whatever. It was related to birds, but it wasn't this part of it. So the meetup stuff, the book, how am I going to get this? Hey, you know what? I ran into a former student of mine. I was teaching a class for the Denver Botanic Gardens and another woman that was on this trip. And we immediately kind of clicked. We're still really good friends. She actually just, she was the editor on the book that I wrote <laughs> last year. But I was talking to him. I was like, you know, I'm thinking about doing this thing via meetup. This was in 2012. Via meetup called Birding and Beers. where We go bird watching and we go have a beer afterwards. You think anybody would be interested in that? Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Okay, well, I'm going to do that then. So I start this meetup group. First one was May of 2012, so in a month, nine years. We go to City Park. I was living in Park Hill at the time. City Park, and then to Vine Street Pub and Grill. I don't know if you're familiar. Mountain Sun is up here in, in Boulder, mm -hmm. so that was their Denver thing. It filled. It, the first one was full. I'm thinking, I thought maybe I'd get two or three people. Maybe, Maybe. <laughs> let alone full. <laughs> well, now we have over 1,100 members. I had I did a Zoom last night with them because right now we normally on a regular meetup, we would have 25 to 30 people out, which is a lot of people, but it's social and people are spreading out. So let's say we come here, you know, I have a couple. Yeah, we're 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 not. And, and I was specific to pick locations that were high use so that even with beginning birders, you didn't have to worry about and you're, the breweries typically don't open until noon, so we're kind of not doing it. We're doing it 10 o'clock in the morning, start time, or in the evening if the, it was, you know, when we had light, light later in the day. But it just took off. Mm. And I, all of a sudden, I had people literally. I mean, I, I, I remember a woman vividly. She showed up. She's like, I've never looked through a pair of binoculars. I don't have a pair of binoculars. I hope you guys can walk me through this, but I think I might want to be a birder. And so we get, and all of a sudden I was like, this is the target market. This is how you put beer in the title in Colorado and you're going to get <laughs> the people, yeah. you know? And so it took off. I still think it was one of my greatest ideas because <laughs> one, now I get to go drink beer with this great community after birding, I can't think of two more fun things to do together. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just kind of, it, it became so incredibly popular. And because I own a travel company, the conversation would come to, what do you do? So now I have this whole portfolio of birding and beers trips too, where like, for instance, the California trip, we will be at a brewery every single day during that. You know, I won't be imbibing during the day, but the guests will. And so it, yeah, I mean, that's a thing. And so it's, it, it, keeps me out. It keeps me out birding. And last year, because of 
COVID gave me a little bit of free time. That book that I pitched, you know, a decade ago, I was finally able to finish. Oh, so that's amazing. What's it called? It's called Best Birding Hikes, and it's the Colorado Front Range. So it's 25 hikes. I say it's 25 hikes that will make you a better birder. It will make you a better birder. It made me a better birder writing it. But it really does. It focuses on beautiful trails setting people up for success, focusing on the common, because I get asked all the time, how do I become a better birder? Well, it's practice, right? And it's not focusing on 50 species on a walk. It's focusing on, okay, we've now we've seen a lot of American robins. Well, let's focus on how do we tell the difference between a male and a female robin? Oh, and yeah, you may say it's just a robin, but did you know robins almost went extinct? During DDT days, like the bald eagle and the peregrine falcon, they get a lot more press. You know, when Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, one of those birds that wasn't singing in the spring was the American robin. But that's mind-blowing to think. Yeah. And so you, it's so ubiquitous now that you wouldn't think that. And here, we, I'm surprised we haven't seen a bald eagle fly over because of that nest. Just, But, you know, those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And it was fun to be able to have Jen, who was... Uh, you know, I actually was the, one of the first people I kind of talked about birding and beers with. Now she works at the Denver Botanic Gardens and she she's, uh, does a lot of technical writing, but she was able to edit the book. And, I, and it was a love project. I wanted to get it done last year. Um, so we published it as an ebook. Mm -hmm. And so I had another really good friend of mine do all the design. So another guy that we work with on website stuff did the website for it. And so it was just a real kind of this great opportunity to get something accomplished that I have been wanting to do for so long and to work with people I really liked. You know, I mean, that was a great thing too. Everybody I, I worked with was fantastic. So yeah, so that's kind of where we are now and why we're here. It's one of my favorite spots. It's beautiful. I'm so glad you said <laughs> we should meet here. I'm like, ah, down, totally down. So we have, uh, I think it's a red-tailed hawk probably there flying over right now. Yeah, I think it's come through a couple of times now. But this is, it's a fantastic spot. And Oh, there you go. Yeah. So that's me. So where um, is your bird? Where where can anyone find that book? Yeah. So it's on uh, the website is best birding and it's be birding, not bird watching, B-I-R-D-I-N-G uh, hikes.com. Mm. And it's an ebook that you just download. And it's trails all the way along the front range from the, the northernmost trails. So there are five trails up in the Fort Collins area. So Soapstone Prairie, which is up close to the Wyoming border down as far south as Aiken Canyon, which wow. is south of Colorado Springs. And they're just gorgeous hikes. So oh it's, gosh. you know, travel, birds, beers, three of my favorite things. And, I mean, you know, come on. So yeah, know. live in the dream. Yeah. <laughs> Last year it was not, it was not exactly a, an enjoyable dream, but you know, it's still, I'm still doing it. And so, you know, that the one thing about last year is it certainly gave an opportunity to, to reset and mm reprioritize and figure out, you know, are you really in it for the right reasons or, you know, is it making you happy? And, and it is. And so that's, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else. So. Wow. That's amazing that you had that chance to reflect on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, forced reflection, forced, but reflection, but, reflection. <laughs> but hey, that's okay. Right. I mean, we, as a species, we don't tend mm -hmm. to, you know, those things that are difficult, we don't seek them out necessarily as often as we should. So exactly. We have, uh, think two bald eagles coming in right oh, behind each other so let's just gosh. watch these if they're not bald eagles nope they're not but you see mm -hmm. the white you know what yeah. they are they're pelicans oh i just gosh. saw the white head and then yeah oh you see the background yeah now. you can see the pelicans so they've just gotten back in the last uh, week or two as well oh that's amazing i used to live really close to arsenal and yeah. they have oh 
just watching them fish together like the little group things i don't know what you call those i don't know either but I they're had, fun <laughs> and i had never watched that how synchronized it yes, is it's amazing. that's one of the things so that's that's the other thing that came out of covid is last year and this was before i really even decided i was going to get the book done i it was like march 16th i think i just internally said because we were on lockdown mm-hmm. and, but they, you know, it was, I, I, there's plenty of birding. I'm at 10 minutes from here. And there's even other places that are really good, even closer. I said, I'm going to go birding every day until COVID is over. And I thought it would be, I, I really thought it would be two weeks. Cause I think that's initially what we were thinking. It'll be a couple of weeks because by Easter, right. It was going to be all wrapped up. So oh, I was going to make, we were. <laughs> keep a checklist every day until COVID was over. I missed April 20th and I missed a day in June. But tomorrow will be 300 straight days of, wow, of really? birding and keeping a checklist. That would have never happened. Wow. And now it's a priority. Now that's something that makes my schedule every day, mm. you know, which is also great. And it's a, afforded me the opportunity to see things I didn't think I could possibly see close to home, you know. Just because you were making, like you said, you were making it a priority. Yeah, exactly. Putting it on the schedule. Mm. So that was the other really great thing about it. So, wow. Yeah. I need need an excuse like that. I need to find something like that. But it's true, right? You have to schedule it out. Whether I was talking to another friend today, you know, whether it's working out or, I mean, there are certain things you're going to do, but I don't know that many of us could say something different that's not in your typical daily routine that you're going to do every single day for a period of time. And I don't know when I'll stop. I will go, I'm going to try to make it to the end of the year so that Mm -hmm. I get the full of every, every day. And there are days where it's a little more challenging. It may be a five-minute checklist or a 10-minute checklist. I had a COVID test today because I'm traveling next week. I did a checklist while I was waiting for my COVID <laughs> test amazing. in a high school parking lot. So I saw crows building a nest. I'm like, this counts. So I'll just uh, document this right now. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Awesome. So I think next, you kind of brought up some things, but One thing I really love to ask everyone on here is what do you think has been one of the biggest struggles that you've had to go through in your career or your life in general? You know, I I think, I think this, this last year has been, it's been a really tough year, you know, in, in the sense of there've been some fantastic things about it. And now I can, I can look at it in the rear view mirror when I was in it, like, April, May, and then we kind of started thinking we were coming out of it and then got, it was like, as, you know, okay, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. Everything keeps push, getting pushed off. It was, I had a tremendous sense of what is it going to be like? Because through birding and beers, and I mentioned travel, I've, I've got this huge local community that are a lot of our core travelers that I know personally, I mean, they're friends, right? And what happens if my business fails? Mm. It, that, the thought of that and that being a failure, like how do I exist in this community? I'm so in this community, this com- not the bigger, but you know, this community of mine that what happens if, if I can't make, I can't figure out a way to make this work to where a year from now, because we don't know, right, what it's going to look like, you know, as we're in the midst of it. What if I have to shut the doors and just maybe, you know, not be able to run those trips that we've postponed or whatever. And so that getting through that on top of the other things where my partner lost her job in May, and then we have two young boys that all of a sudden have to be homeschooled. 
and you're, you're, you're sitting here going, is what is, how is this all coming to a head all at once? You know, I'm losing my business. I, it's out of control. I have no control over it. So, you know, I tell the story. It would have been a lot better if I had just fucked up, excuse my language. Oh, and, you, can and, you, you know you what I mean? And, and that, that was it, that it was a big mess up and something that was at least in your control. Yeah, that was in my control. But this is the, 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 you know, floor has been pulled out from underneath you. And now on top of that, you have these two young boys that just got found out they're not going to go back to school for the year. Oh, and two months later you get a call. I go camping. I needed to get away. And so I was trying to kind of process and my partner said, go, why don't you just go camping for a couple of days? So I went up to this state wildlife area in Northeastern Colorado and I was going to be there for, I, I think it was going to be, I think it was going to be there three nights. And it was, this was the second night and I get a call and, you know, she says, I, I just lost my job. And I'm sitting there going, what are we going to do? You know, it's like, you don't, you don't know at this point, you know, you've got PPP that's going to last you for five months, but now your other income. And so trying to figure out all of that and, and, you know, trying to figure out, well, is this the opportunity? Cause I, you know, I'm an advocate for if, if you can, if you can find it in yourself, if you have any wherewithal to be an entrepreneur or a business owner, there's so much reward in that. And I had always said, you know, maybe, maybe you should be doing your own. You know, you really have a specific client that you want to work with. You have a specific way you want to do it. You're really in it for your clients, which again, you're not going to be able to do if you work for a, a large firm. It's just right. not going to happen. Maybe this is the opportunity. And that's essentially what has happened. Like now her business is, you know, up and running and all these things. But this last year was, it was interesting. I tell my boys, I was like, you saw me cry more last year than, than ever, <laughs> I, you know, and you, they just looking at you like, what is going on? It's like, you know, Oh, another cancellation or, you know, Oh, you know, this, and it's just like, man, just when you think you're getting it back. So that, that's a lot of it. But the other thing is you're not alone. You know, I mean, I've, I've been able to go out with colleagues and talk about the suck. You know, you, we said it earlier. I mean, for, you know, we, but with our boys, embrace the suck. Like this sucks. There's no other way around it. It sucks. I mean, we had a lot of family time and stuff too, which came out of it, but it still didn't take away the other stuff. And so that was a challenge and, and making sure, you know, giving myself a deadline for the book and, and getting that done and trying to figure out what that was going to look like and making sure that I kept the community of birding and beers going too, because we, we weren't able to get together. And so doing Zooms where, okay, how can we make this creative where it's not just 15 people online and a couple of members had kind of come up with these ideas that were, why don't you give us something to do? And then we'll all come back and talk about it. So, you know, I mentioned City Park was the first place we ever had a birding and beers. So we always do an anniversary walk at City Park. Well, last year, May, we couldn't do it. So it was go to City Park on your own, between now and when we get online and come back and share what you found and go get a beer at a local brewery within Help 10 support miles them. And, and support a local brewery. And we're going to talk about, you know, so the, now we do it. We've done several of them. We have one last night, which was it's spring. What are the birds telling you? You know, it's like everybody, what have you noticed differently? And it's like, where did you go? What did you see? What are you drinking? Last night was a lot of wine said Last night was wines and wings. Somebody said, "Oh my gosh, that's amazing!" <laughs> was it? We've done oh. we've done whiskey and wings before. I need to be a part of this group. Yeah. But <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I think that's all of it. And you know, with anything else, we've all heard it. With grief, with 
loss, time as a healer, you will get better with time. You don't see it when you're in it, and it certainly doesn't feel like it, and you don't know how long it's going to be, but there will be a point where it's not going to hurt as much, and it's not going to maybe be as scary, all of that. And now it's just, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm thankful for it, but it certainly allowed me a perspective that I wouldn't have today without it. So yeah, it's been a, a real challenge, but also now I can appreciate that challenge. You know, it's I'm sure the same challenge as somebody trains for a, a marathon or anything else, but you know, we did, we, there was a lot, it definitely felt like a, a period of loss where you thought what you thought was going to happen just disappeared, but slowly coming back and it's coming back in a different way. And, and I like the way it's coming back in that different way. So it's good. Then what would you think in your opinion? I mean, you've said so many amazing things that you've done, but what are you most proud of? You know, I think I'm most proud of the community. I do think birding and beers. I love reefs to Rockies, but I think the community that I've helped foster, because it's the other members too, that I'm super proud of because it's it's a group of, it's such a diverse group of people in the sense of where they're at in their lives, whether they live alone, whether they're married, whether they're younger, you know, everybody has to be 21 if they're, you know, they don't have to be, we have people that bring kids, but you know, most people are like the members. Yeah. And, but it, it's a sense of connection. It's an opportunity. It's a safe space and it's based in nature, which I think it's for a lot of people, it's spirit. It can be spiritual. It's a healer just being outdoors. And so making that opportunity available on a regular basis and, and, and still having people show up every time I announce an event, that means a lot. You know, I mean, I really do think I'm, that I've, I'm really proud of. And, you know, it, it, it has an educational component. It has a supporting local business component. It has all these other facets. But most importantly, you know, I've had, especially when we first started getting back together last year, I guess it probably would have been late summer, fall, where we would stay after and like even here, you know, bring a chair and bring a, a beverage, you know, like if we could, because we couldn't go to a brewery and sit outside. And how many times I had somebody look at me and go, this is the first time I've been around other people in months. Do you know how much I needed this? I live alone. I, I'm working from home. This was so, this feels so good. And so that that I'm super proud of and super happy to have gotten that idea. And then, of course, it's now a lot of the members that really keep it going. But today that, that I'm real, I'm real proud of that. So it's beautiful. <laughs> so I guess uh, I'd love to ask this one last question. You have so much wonderful experience. So to anyone listening, what is like the biggest piece of advice that either you've been told or that you love to give that you would like to share? Trust your gut. Mm, yes. I mean, there is something about it, right? We tend to, what was it? I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. I think, and I, his books kind of blur together, but I think it's Blink where it talks about we make assessments and it's not always right. But if you feel like driven to something, if you feel like this is really where, where you want to be or where you want to go, trust in it and, and, and be willing to work your ass off for it. But also... Be willing to like understand that maybe it's not the right thing for you. And maybe you thought it was, and it's okay to not, it not to be what you thought it was going to be. So just kind of 
If inside it doesn't feel good, trust that. If it feels good, even little bits of it, then, you know, stick with it. Trust that too. Trust that too. Yeah. I think that's huge. You know, there's just something to be said for that, that ability to kind of just, it's probably you, you feel that way for a reason. And so I don't, I don't know that we always do that, you know, and allowing yourself the opportunity to, to be in tune with that, to be not so into whatever it is, you know, to kind of give yourself the opportunity to get out of your headspace a little bit and, and, and let those things happen. And if anybody wants to get connected with you or Reefs to Rockies, what's what's the best way? Yeah, so the website, the company is Reefs to Rockies, which it's, if it's you know, you always have to spell it. It's reefs as in coral reefs, and it is with an S because it gets dropped a lot. <laughs> so it's R-E-E-F as in Frank, S as in Sam to Rockies. And then my email, and this is now that I've had to spell that, it's Sheridan at ReefsToRockies.com. So you can only imagine how many times people have not gotten me emails because my <laughs> name is difficult. But you can just go to Reese to Rockies and send me something through contact. Birding and Beers is a meetup group, so that's open to everybody. We actually had somebody join us last night from Phoenix. Really? Yeah, she was a first-timer, and her friend had just joined the group. He was also a first-timer. She's from here originally. And it was great. She's like, yeah, it gave me something to do tonight. Talk about she had gone birding in Phoenix, and so she was talking about that. So that's Birding and Beers and Birdwatch. It's short, Birding. I'm a birder. I'm not. Bird watching is just, we, we kind of joke about the, the difference. If you're just looking birding is you know taking it kind of all in and then the book is bestbirdinghikes.com so yeah well awesome well should we go get a beer we let's go get a beer right let's now. go get a beer <laughs> hey thanks again for listening to this episode of rewildology if you like what you heard hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode do you have a cool environmental organization travel story or research that you'd like to share let me know at rewildology.com until next time friends together we will rewild the planet <laughs>